good to be back today. So many of you have asked, and we thank you for your prayers and your concerns. We are feeling much better, and uh, glad to be here. Please turn in your Bible, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. We've had a short break from our systematic study through this New Testament letter as we closed out the year. Today we return, beginning again in the second chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read together verses 1 through 3 as our text for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on our time today in this text. God, we pray that you would guide our thoughts, that you would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of coming judgment. God, we pray that you hide this preacher behind the cross, that the message of Jesus Christ would be heard, that we would hear the voice of our Savior. And we ask this for our good, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. Amen. As we begin this morning, allow me to remind you once again that there is no real division as we move from chapter 1 into chapter 2. The chapter and verse numberings are for our convenience and for reference to the text, but this is a whole letter that was written with unity and continuity. So as we leave chapter one, we don't leave chapter one. We don't leave behind the truths that are there. What we observed, what we learned in chapter one carries forward into chapter two. And our text begins today in a way that reminds us of this. We begin with the word, therefore. And some of you already know what I'm going to say. When you see the word therefore, you see what it's there for. You have to look and see what comes before it, what, what has preceded. So let us be reminded now what we saw in chapter 1. Chapter 1 called us to consider the living hope that we have in Christ and the great salvation through his precious blood. Let us read just a few verses from chapter 1, if you still have your Bible open, that will bring the aroma of chapter 1 into the room for us. Verses 22 through 25 of chapter 1. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, <coughs> not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. 
the enduring word of Christ was preached and you who were dead in sins were, to use the phrasing of the text, born again. Someone has pointed out to say you are a born again Christian is redundant and it's also repetitive. To say born again Christian is redundant. Christians are born again and those who are born again are Christians and those who are not reborn, those who are not born again are still in their sin and without God in the world. This letter is written to those born again, the elect of God, those born of an incorruptible, imperishable seed redeemed by the precious blood of the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. Stating what we know, but using this terminology from chapter 1. And now we come to chapter 2 and we see, therefore, therefore, all this salvation talk comes forward, therefore. And, and it occurs to me that we're much more familiar with the Apostle Paul's style of writing than we are with Peter. That's true for most of us. Uh, Paul's writing, he, he follows a pattern. Paul writes making his case, presenting facts in the first half of his letter. And then in the last part, he gives the application of all that truth. In the last half of Paul's letters, he gives us the therefore. Uh, we're able to see this when we consider Paul's letters. In Ephesians, for instance, he lays down much truth, much fact in the first three chapters. And then you come to Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 4 begins with therefore. And the same in Philippians. We come to Philippians chapter 4 and we see therefore. Colossians chapter 3, therefore. Uh, these, these therefores in Paul's writings serve as a henchman. I think of it as a giant uh, swinging door. Uh, it, it serves as a henchman or the turning point of the book. Even in a larger book, uh, so much truth, so much gospel truth is presented in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then you come to Romans 12 and we get, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So we get this therefore. And this is Paul's style, giving all the truth and then all the application. But Peter writes differently. He gives us the facts but he gives us the facts in much smaller bites. And then he makes the application as we go along. So we have already in chapter one of the letter, first Peter, we've already seen one therefore. And now here we are in chapter two at the beginning of chapter two. And we see in verse one, another therefore. So there's going to be Lots more back and forth with fact and application and facts and application and truth and application. Chapter 1 covered much ground. Uh, Peter, Peter's writing is, is very dense. It covered much ground in chapter 1, but we know the main theme, the main thing that screams out to us from chapter 1 
is the salvation that we have in God through Jesus Christ. It's about salvation. And the letter is written to the, the recipients of the letter are the elect of God, those redeemed by the blood of Jesus, born again by incorruptible seed of the word of Christ. You are disciples. You are followers. You are Christians. Therefore, because of what Christ has done and because of who you are in Christ, therefore, Therefore, is not just here for a few. It's here for every Christian. This is not a therefore for preachers. A therefore for the officers of the church. This is not therefore for seminarians. This is not for the professional class of Christian. This therefore is not limited to an elite group or to a select group. Are you a Christian? This, therefore, is for you. We have salvation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you were saved by grace through faith, apart from works. Therefore. And now we're going to see there's work to be done. Saved by grace through faith, apart from works. But now there's work to be done. There are two Items, two main things that we'll see this morning on our to-do list. First, there is a laying aside, and then there is longing. Laying aside and longing. So if we come to first thing, laying aside, and we consider it. Therefore, the text says, therefore, laying aside. I think the first thing to note here is that the Christian life is not one to be a life of neutrality or passivity. Christians don't coast. The whole New Testament speaks of the way that a Christian should live. The whole New Testament speaks of how we should walk. That's the common, uh, that's the common word picture that we get of living the Christian life. Walk. Uh, if you have an NIV, they've changed that most of the places to live. And I think we really miss something when we don't have that picture of walking, of walking step by step, plodding with Jesus, walking. The whole New Testament has things for us to do. And we are very happy, especially as Reformed Baptists, to speak about salvation by grace without the addition of our work. Praise God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are very often quoted verses of Scripture and for good reason. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What a wonderful salvation that we have by grace through faith and not of works. But let us also continue reading, Christians. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is followed by Ephesians 2, 10. And it is also very important for us as Christians. It says this, for we are his workmanship. Now that continues the idea. We are his work. We are his workmanship. It continues created in Christ Jesus unto good work. 
which God hath ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created unto good works. You are not, you are not made a new creature by good works, but you are made a new creature for good works, unto good works. We are new creatures by the work of God, but we are also created for the task of doing good works. God has ordained that Christians walk in these good works. So no Christian is to coast. We read in the New Testament of the things that we are to do. We find those things also presented in the moral law. Uh, but in the New Testament, we find this over and over again. We find that some of this work is putting on and putting off. Putting on and putting off. Put off the old man, put on Christ. Put off the flesh, put on the whole armor of God. Put off sin, put on righteousness. It occurs to me, we just read from Joshua and we read the command to lay aside or put away or put off the gods of the old place, the god, the false gods where they had been. Put that away. And we have this command to put off, put off and lay aside. In this text, we have this instruction. Your Bible may say, put off. The King James says laying aside. And I'll use those interchangeably uh, because that's just the way it is. Another observation that we make, so first of all, that a Christian is not to coast, that a Christian is to be working. The second observation that we make about this, therefore laying aside the instruction to put off or to lay aside is not a once and done prospect. This is not like putting off your coat or putting off your hat. You put off your coat and your hat, very quickly you are done putting off your coat and hat. It's, it's done. It's a finished, completed task. Uh, you, you, you do it and it's done. But laying aside of the stuff of the old man is a work that must be continuously done. It is never completed in this world. In this world, we are never done with the work of laying aside, of putting off. That is one thing that makes heaven so sweet to us. In that day, all the putting off will finally be done. Finally and fully. We will lay aside this flesh and put on glorified bodies what a day that will be. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's the other side. When putting off is finished. But here, laying aside, putting off is continual. And then we see this. The verbiage here is laying aside, not having laid aside. It's not something that is complete. So Christian... If you have stopped the work, if you have taken a break from laying aside, if you have ceased putting off, then this is a call to get back in the fight. Don't pretend that you can live 
Christian, to satisfy self. You can no longer live in that way. Christian, get back to pleasing your heavenly father by walking in the good works that he has beforehand ordained for you. And today we see one of those is laying aside. And we have this list of what we are to lay aside. Therefore, laying aside all malice. Now, some believe this list of things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Some believe this to be uh, one thing, really, with subheadings and one motivation. That, that this is really uh, to be understood that these things are connected. And, and I think we can see that. We can certainly see how malice would produce other behaviors it, to include deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. We can see how malice would produce those things, but we need to understand malice is not an action. If I were to say, okay, everybody do malice, but you can't do malice. It's not an action. It is a motivation or a mindset. It is an attitude. Malice does not speak about what is done, but it speaks to the intent of the person while doing something. Malice is ill will. Malice is evil intent. We can conceive of some action that might be seemingly nice. It might be seemingly a good action, but it can be done with malice. It can be done with evil intent and Malice changes the action. Now think about, think about it. Did you hear what Pastor Brent said to me? He said good morning. But I think that I, I think he meant something else. If we if we do something that is a good thing, that is a nice thing, but we we see malice in it, it changes the action from something that is good to something that is bad. Intent matters. Intent matters. Now our legal system, in our legal system, there is consideration for intent. Manslaughter is an unlawful killing that does not involve what, what they say, malice aforethought. It does not, you know, this is manslaughter. It's an unlawful killing, but it's an unlawful killing without malice. But murder is an unlawful killing with malice aforethought, with malice in the heart. The conviction and the punishment of these crimes is different in our legal system and the difference is based on intent. Now I was going to try to remember that word that one of our law students told me, but I, you'll have to ask them. There's other words to go with this. But, but intent makes a difference. Intent matters. And what we see in this text is that intent, evil intent, malice is sin. Now, it is absolutely unprosecutable in our legal system when you just have a feeling. There needs to be action. But the scriptural bar is much 
higher. Even when it doesn't lead to murder, even when it hasn't been acted on, while it's only a heart condition, malice is sin. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit. Deceit is an assault on the truth. Deceit attempts to distort or hide or undermine truth. Deceit may be accomplished by making well-timed, carefully worded statements of truth, which intentionally lead the hearer to a false conclusion. And deceit has happened. Well, you lie. Oh, no, I didn't lie. You deceive. And we don't have time to look into every aspect of deceit, but we have to approach and understand deceit uh, with maturity and, and with a depth of understanding. Now, I don't think I have to explain deceit to any one of you. I think we inherently understand deceit. Do you remember when you taught your children to deceive? No, nobody remembers teaching our children to deceive. We didn't have to. We come with it. We understand deceit. We, we also understand that there are times when a kind of misleading or misinformation is not wrong. And in fact, it may be at times the most righteous course of action. And I'm thinking about that example when the Nazi knocks, when the Nazi soldiers knock on the door and ask if there are any Jews in the house. Righteousness does not require, righteousness does not demand that you say, well, yes, there are. We hid them under the floorboards. Come on and I'll show you. Righteousness does not demand that. There is a place for righteous misleading and misinformation. I think we can better understand this when we consider the motive. Malice. Is malice the motive? Is the person acting with malice when they mislead the evil soldiers? No, they're not. They're acting in a righteous way. But we, understanding that there is a time and a place for that, what do we want to do? We want to make every time and every place the time and place for deceit. We, we, want to, we want to turn it into the regular practice, but we must beware that we never turn this into an excuse to sin, to deceive in a self-serving and sinful way is sin. And if we are honest with ourselves, we would see when we deceive, it is most of the time, it is 99% of the time self-serving and sinful. The text is instructing us in this general path for the majority of the time and in the way that we understand deceit. Deceit is sin and must be put away. Laid aside all malice, all deceit and 
hypocrisy. Now we see that deceit and hypocrisy here are twins. They are twin sins. And we certainly see the, the progression, uh, deceit to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a type of deceit. Pretending to be what you are not in reality. Putting uh, a false face. Jesus' most often repeated descriptor of the Pharisees was that they were hypocrites. You hypocrites. They were vipers. They demanded a level of righteousness from the people that they were not themselves willing or able to live by. And then they presented themselves as being more holy than all the others. They were hypocrites. It is interesting that this sin, hypocrisy, is the most often leveled complaint against Christians. I know about those Christians. I, I know about the church. It's full of hypocrites. Full of hypocrites. And, and we must admit there certainly are hypocrites in the church. There are those who are not righteous but claim to be. But speaking to true Christians, to true followers of Christ, how can a true believer be a hypocrite? We know that our best, our best, I'm looking out at you and some of you are at your best today. What does the Bible tell us about our best? It's filthy rags. Our best is filthy rags and we can do nothing good. There is none righteous. <clears throat> none. And we know that when we are saved, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. We use that term imputed. What it means is it's applied to our account. That doesn't mean we earned it. That doesn't mean we get credit for it. That, that doesn't, in other words, that doesn't mean we get glory for it. That doesn't mean we boast about it. The righteousness of Christ being imputed or applied to us leaves the only boasting to be done in Christ. He is the one who is worthy of boasting. He is the one who can glory in the righteousness that we have. So how can we be hypocrites? Christian, if you are being a hypocrite, repent. I, I pray that any accusation of hypocrisy toward us is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the word. And I think that often that's the case. A misunderstanding of Christianity. Christians are not claiming to be perfect. We're claiming to have a perfect Savior. That's our claim. I pray we remain constantly humble, knowing that we are nothing, knowing that we are less than nothing, and that any worth that is found in us, it's from Christ, and it's for Christ, and it's unto Christ. To Him be glory forever. Christians cannot, must not be hypocrites 
So Christian, if you see hypocrisy, lay it aside. Lay aside deceit and hypocrisy. Just as deceit and hypocrisy are twins, so are the next two in the list, envy and slander. Envy and slander. The leading cause of slander is envy. Slander is speaking evil of someone with the intent of doing them harm. We hear people trying to justify slander by saying, well, it was true. Well, if it's true, and I know that our law students, I, I told some of our law students, today's the day for you. Uh, I know our law students will point out that slander in our legal system is a false statement. Slander in our legal system is a false statement, but again, the biblical standard is higher. Something being true is a good defense in a court of law against an accusation of slander. It's true, great defense. But when we come to the court of God, slander is sin. Speaking with the intent to harm someone is sin, even if the statement is true. Again, the malice is seen here. The motivation saying something true, knowing that it will bring harm, that it will bring shame, that it will damage someone. It is wrong. It is sin. And the motivation for slander, envy, envy. What is it for a Christian to envy? Christian, would we envy another Christian? Or would we envy an unbeliever? What do we say when we envy? Look at, look at what they have. I don't have that. God didn't give me the same thing that he gave them. God has mistreated me. That, that's what envy is. It's a statement of God. God has mistreated me. I deserve something better, something more than God has provided. How foolish are we when we look at something another person has and wish we wish we had not? How ungrateful we are for what God has given us. What entitled brats we show ourselves to be when we envy. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, we see the first work that we're to do here is the laying aside. But while we are laying aside, the, the, the sentence structure is not like do this and then do that, but at the same time, Together with the laying aside of these sinful things, we are to be longing, longing. So let us consider verse two. And folks, I'm going to finish. Lunch is going to be right down the hall. So I'm going to finish. The command here in verse two, the imperative is that we long. Whatever you are longing for, this is what you should be longing for. Isn't it good that the Bible tells us what to long for? Uh, people say, you can't tell me what to think. Well, the Bible tells us what to think. You can't tell me what to want. Well, the Bible tells us what to want. 
The Bible tells us these things. If, if Christ is our Redeemer, if He is our Savior, our Master, our Lord, He should be able to set our desires. The Bible speaks of the Lord giving you the desires of your heart. It's a promise of Scripture that He will give you the desires of your heart. And some of us think that means that my desires, He will provide, He will supply, He will give me. Uh, think of it this way. He will give you the desires of your heart as in He will tell you what you must desire. And then He will fulfill those things. Desire what He commands. Desire what he has for us. We're commanded here to long after this. To long after this. And not only what to long for. Long for it in this way. Verse 2. Long like newborn babies. Longing for milk. What a great church to preach this text. In. What? I've been in churches where there were no children and no babies to be seen for miles and seen. You can hear a pin drop. Thank you. <laughs> it, it, certain illustration. We have the noise of babies. I, I'm not complaining. It's, it's a good noise, right? Isn't it a wonderful, isn't baby noise just great? As Sunday school began, we had two baby girls uh, calling back and forth across the room. It was, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Don't we, en don't we enjoy baby noises? Now, mothers, have you ever been a little late with the milk? That's a, that's a different noise, isn't it? That's not sweet. That's not precious. That is, that is demon child stuff. That is, that is, oh, there is nothing like that. It's unmistakable. And if you're a little late, just five minutes. You can say that to the child. Just five minutes. And they will say, well, okay, if it's just five minutes. <laughs> no, they won't. You could say, if you stop crying, I will buy you a brand new car. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They don't care about your car. They don't care about the toys. They don't care about rocking or hope. They don't care about anything in that moment. All that matters is the milk. That's all that matters. I gotta have it now. We used to joke when our when our children were babies, and they would cry, and we'd finally get that milk, and they would go, oh, 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 as they were drinking the milk. And I would say, I know, you almost died. It was, it was so close. You just almost didn't make it. That longing for milk is unmistakable. And it is strong. I gotta get back to my notes. A hungry baby is desperate for milk. Desperate. And God has given us such a clear picture of how we are to long. How we are to long. Long like a baby longs for milk. Now as we grow older, we learn to... Uh, temper our longings. We, we can wait a bit for our next meal. And even when inside we may have this longing, we can put on a good face. But Christians, 
we are not to be that way when it comes to longing for the word. When there is a threat to take the word of God from us, we must, we must become desperate for it. We should be desperate for it daily. We long, the scripture instructs us to long for the pure milk of the word. It's the word of God. And maybe that strikes you funny. Some, some, some wonder, what's the big deal about the Bible? Some would even say, well, I love Jesus, but I'm not that crazy about the Bible. Christians, you can't love Jesus without loving his word. I would like to say this is complicated. I would like to explain some deep truth here. It's pretty simple. It's the Bible. It's the word of God. It's the Old and New Testament. Long after that. I thought of days when there was potential in Christians to long for the word and that longing to be unsatisfied. Like the days before the printing press when, when having access to a Bible, having access to the word of God was difficult and at times impossible and far too expensive to own a copy of the Bible. But we live in a day when Bibles are so readily available and accessible. They're in our language. There are several translations in our language. And they're cheap. You can literally pick up a King James Bible for free at any hotel or hospital. And that's not stealing. They are there provided by the Gideons and they want you to take it if you will read it. And it will be replaced for the next person who would like a copy. The, the Word of God is available. I was thinking, I, I'm sure this is different now, but when I was growing up, you got a Bible at school. We got a Bible handed to us at school. Bibles are so readily available. And how many websites are there that can put the Word of God before your eyes in seconds on your computer, on your tablet, on your phone? The Word of God is available. What a blessing! But who's reading? Who's reading the Scripture? Christians, are we, are we going to the scripture? Are we longing after the pure milk of the word of God? Or are we more faithful to hear our podcasts and to watch our favorite television shows than we are to go to the word of God? When your baby skips a meal, <laughs> they're in a bad mood. When you don't have the opportunity to get in the Word of God, does it change? Does it change you? Does it affect you? Or is it just business as usual? God commands that we long for the Bible like a baby longs for milk. Just a quick note here on 
the pure milk of the word. The pure milk of the word. Not adjusted, not mixed, not fortified, not adulterated. Pure milk. Some Christians long for the chocolate milk of the word. Something sweetened, something flavored. That's what they want. And what does that make? That makes Christians fat and unhealthy and lethargic. Pure milk. And we have this motivation in the text to have this desperate longing for the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So that by it you may grow. Not so long ago our youngest grandchild was struggling. She was not gaining weight. She couldn't stay in a healthy weight bracket for her age. She was also not developing as she should. The doctors were concerned. Several talked about diagnosis that were scary, that we were very worried about. And then a diet change was suggested. Turns out she wasn't getting the milk she needed. She was struggling and she was failing in so many areas and it was all because of a lack of nutrition. Changing her diet so that she is now getting the milk, the nutrition that she needs, it has been amazing to watch the transformation. She is not the same girl. She's growing. Babies grow by the milk they drink in. And Christians grow by the word of God as we take it in. We grow by the word. We don't grow by monastic depriving of the body. We don't grow by just hanging out with one another. We don't grow by attending conferences. We grow by the word. Now you take any of those things or any other thing and you put the word of God in it and we can grow by it. We can grow by depriving the body for a period of time to focus on the word. We might call that a fast. We can grow by hanging out with one another when we're hanging out and we're all feasting on the word and the word consumes our conversation and we can grow in that way. We can grow by attending a conference if at that conference the word of God is being rightly taught. But we primarily grow by the preaching and teaching of the word of God in the assembled church on the Lord's day. Our private and family Bible study is best when it supplements and supports the preached word. We grow by the word. We grow by the pure milk of the word and we are to long for it. Verse three, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, you will have a taste for his word. If you have tasted to see that the Lord is good, you know the Holy Scripture is good. The Word is our source, our source of knowledge about God, our source of knowledge about sin and salvation and grace and heaven and hell. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are our only 
certain and infallible rule for all faith and obedience. This is common among every true believer in Jesus Christ. I love Jesus and I love his word. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm. Father, we pray that you'd apply your word to our hearts. God, help us as we seek to obey you, as we seek to please you. God, as we come to the table, we pray that you would be with us. Spiritually present. As we bring our sin to you, laying aside the old man, laying aside malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We come to you resting in Jesus Christ. Bless us now. In Jesus' name.